How would you have ended it? How would you have ended the greatest story ever told? It's found in the Bible, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Gospels, we find the account of how God said that he would give his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, how he would send him to the earth, how God would take on flesh and blood, how he would walk the earth, how he would perform miracles, how he would ultimately go to a cross to give his life, to pay the penalty of sin that we owed, the penalty of death that had to be paid. As you think about the gospel accounts, as you think about the, the, the death of Jesus, you know the story didn't end there on the cross. Because three days later, the Bible says that God rose from the dead. Jesus Christ came out of the tomb alive. And he walked the earth for more than 40 days before he ascended into heaven, where he's currently waiting to return for us. As you look at how John ends his gospel account, he says in John 21, 25, and, and there are also so many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written, if they were written in detail, he says, I suppose that not even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, that's, that's a pretty good way to end the story, isn't it? John leaves us open for a sequel. He says, there are so many things that have not yet been reported. Now, Matthew's ending is pretty good as well, because in it we find a cliffhanger. We come to the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, and and as Jesus gathered his disciples together on the mountain, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus looks him in the eye, and he says, I can do anything I want, any way that I want. And as the disciples are there, as they're hanging on Jesus' words, as they're waiting to hear, well, what comes next? Jesus says, I choose you. I choose you to go into the world to teach others all that I taught you, to baptize other believers. I choose you to go and spread the gospel message. And then he says, and and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Mark's ending is interesting. As you look at the end of the book of Mark, uh, if you're using an English translation, you'll notice that there are brackets beginning around Mark 16, 9. And, and when you see brackets like that in the Bible, what it tells us is there's, there's a question in the earliest ancient best manuscripts as to where this came from. You see, Mark's gospel ending is a bit abrupt if you take out that last section. It appears that somewhere along the way, something happened and that part of the manuscript was lost. And some scribe somewhere said, we can't end the story like this. And so he, he looked in other accounts and, and he, some scribe somewhere borrowed. So Mark's ending tells us as Matthew did about the commissioning. And then uh, you'll see the ascension there as well as Luke will tell us about. Now, when we come to Luke's ending, there's no question. There's no question that what we have is original, as we read in Luke 24, 50 through 53. It says, And he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he, he, he parted from them, and there was, he was carried up into heaven. This is the ascension. And they, the disciples, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So Luke's ending is like this. The movie is coming to a close. The credits are about to start rolling. And, and we see this, this great 
resurrection, not bodily like from the tomb, but there's this rising from the earth. And Jesus ascends up into the clouds. And as Jesus goes up into the clouds, we we flash to this last scene and it shows the disciples sitting in the temple in church singing some songs. Now, maybe you're sitting here going, "That's, that's kind of a little anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, I like worshiping in church, but is that really the way to end the greatest story ever told? Well, if you were hoping for a little bit more, the good news is God doesn't end the story there. Because as we turn in our Bibles today to the book of Acts, we're going to see that the story did not end in the Gospels. In fact, Luke's writing is considered volume number one of the story. And volume number two is what we're going to begin looking at today called the book of Acts. If you haven't already turned with me there in your Bible, it's after the Gospels. Go to the New Testament. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then come Acts. And as we look at the opening verses of the book of Acts, this is what it tells us in 1, 1 through 2. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So when Luke says the first account, he's referring to the gospel of Luke. And if you look at the very beginning of the gospel, it tells us in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those uh, they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke, as he opens volume one, tells us that he is writing the things as a historian, as as somebody to prove what has happened. Now you'll notice that here in Acts, we find this guy Theophilus mentioned again. There in Luke's account, he calls him Most Excellent Theophilus. Now, this was a title of honor that was used of a high Roman official. Later in Acts 23:26, we'll see that he refers to the Roman governor Felix as Most Excellent Felix. So this guy named Theophilus is, is a high Roman official. Now, there's debate as to whether this is his, his real name or whether it's a pseudonym, some name that is used in order to hide his identity. Remember that at the time, uh, Christianity was not embraced by Rome. And so uh, this person, his name means dear to God, friend of God, or lover of God. It could be his actual name or it could be a person within the Roman government, who uh, is, is a follower or, at, at best, a seeker of God. And Luke is writing an account to him to record who Jesus was, to give a record of what he did. And then as we go into chapter 2, what we find is the record of the early church. Now, we don't find Luke identifying himself as the author here in the book of Acts, but everything from the writing style to this tie-in that we just looked at in Luke's gospel, uh, and what we'll see later in Acts, later in Acts, Luke will use the first-person plural pronouns like we and us. As he gets to the point where he's talking about what is happening with Paul, Saul had been persecuting the church, but as we're going to see today, he became the apostle Paul. And later, Luke will be traveling around with Paul, and he'll be giving eyewitness testimony as to what was happening when he says, we and us, he's talking about being there with Paul. 
Uh, Luke was Paul's traveling companion. He was also his personal physician. In Colossians 4.14, we're told that, that Luke was with Paul and he was taking care of him. He was, he was a doctor. Now, as a doctor, Luke was highly educated and he was a scientist. And he applies this to, to what he writes. As we saw in Luke 1, uh, 1 through 4, he said that he meticulously researched the facts before he wrote the gospel account. And as we look at what's happening here in Acts 1-3, he says that he is going to write many convincing proofs. Now, he uses a very unique word. It's the Greek word tekmerion here. And this is the only time it's ever found in the Bible. And it's a, it's a word that speaks of tangible and demonstrable proofs or evidence. So is Luke the scientist, you know, is, is, is writing the gospel accounts, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to give you proof as to the veracity, the truth of what you're reading in my accounts. In John chapter 20, verse 25, you'll recall that uh, the other disciples had seen the resurrected Lord, but, but Thomas had been missing at the first appearance. And they told Thomas, look, we've seen Jesus. It says there, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side where the spear had, had pierced Jesus on the cross, Thomas says, I will not believe. He says, you guys are eyewitnesses. You're telling me that it happened. But he said, unless I see tangible, demonstrable proof, unless I physically touch the Lord, I'm not going to believe it. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to them again. And this time Thomas was there. And in John 20, chapter 20, verses 27 through 29, it tells us this. Then Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, it wasn't just Thomas who was given tangible physical proof that Jesus was truly alive. We find another account in Luke's gospel. In Luke 24, 38 through 43, Jesus appeared to others and Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet and that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. You see, Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a figment of your imagination. I've truly risen from the dead. Touch me, feel me, I'm here. Watch me eat. I'm not a ghost, an apparition. I'm real. Jesus was not a ghost. He had a physical body. He had been raised from the grave. And this is what we read in Acts 1, 3, where it says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. As Jesus appeared, remember that there are multiple resurrection appearances recorded in the Gospels. 
There were times he appeared to an individual like Peter alone. There were times it was just, you know, two or three as he walked along the road with the disciples in Emmaus. There were times he appeared to larger groups, the the disciples. And there were times that he appeared even to a, a massive group of people. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, we're told he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. These were not hallucinations. These were not figments of people's imagination. Jesus Christ was alive. He was walking the earth. Matthew 28, 13 tells us the Jewish authorities had come up with a bogus story after the the crucifixion of Jesus. They posted a guard at the tomb. They said, the disciples said, this this man, Jesus, said he was going to rise from the dead after three days. And we're afraid his disciples will steal the body. So they put a, a, a Roman guard Cracked troops, Navy SEALs at the tomb. And they said, guard the tomb. And do you remember what happened? The tomb opened. Jesus came out alive. The guards fell like dead men. And, and they came and they reported to the Jewish authorities what had happened. And they said, okay, listen, we're going to pay you off. We'll take care of the governor. Uh, it would have been the death penalty that, for them sleeping on the job. And they said, we weren't sleeping. We were knocked out. And... And he rose, and they said, Shh, don't tell anybody that. Just let's say the disciples came and stole the body. Really? These 11 guys who were hiding in fear, locked behind doors, they came and attacked a, a, a group of Navy SEALs to steal a body? Now, the problem was, as they circulated this story that somebody had taken the body, the problem was the body kept showing up alive. <laughs> See, Jesus is walking around. He's appearing here. He's appearing there. He's with this group. He's with this crowd. And the stories are circulating. He's alive. We've seen him. And as we're reading what Luke is writing for us here in the gospel, um, remember Luke's a historian. Now, I want to emphasize this fact for a couple reasons. When we try to date when were books written, scholars will tell us the, the, the book of Acts was written about 62 AD. 62 AD. Now, why is that date important? Well, Jesus was crucified around 33 AD. So that means less than 30 years have passed since the writing of Luke. Now, remember, Luke's a historian. He says, I meticulously record all the facts. And beyond the Bible, we have an outside witness named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian who was not a believer in Christ. And he confirms many of the things that we read in the scriptures. So we have these two parallel accounts of stuff that is happening. And Luke is telling us that Jesus is walking around alive. Now, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. As you read the the book of Acts, you don't find the mention of the destruction of the temple. If you were a Jewish historian like Josephus, you recorded. If you were a person like Luke recording the events around it, you would definitely put the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. It's not in here. Why? Because the book was written before that happened. So we know it wasn't 70 AD, it was earlier. Later in Acts, we're going to see where Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He's going to be released. Uh, He's going to eventually be killed, but Luke doesn't record that either, which means that happened in the late 60s, so we have to move the date earlier. That's why I'm telling you that we have firm assurance that it's about 62 AD when this book is written. 
Now that's important because as Luke is writing, there were many witnesses who saw these things happening. If you wanted to say, no, 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 that's not true. If I were writing in 2016, 2015 in our day, you're saying, Roger, 2,000 years have passed. I can't go back and double check what you're telling me. As Luke is writing this, he's saying, hey, go talk to the people. They're right there. That person saw Jesus and this person saw Jesus. Ask her. You could confirm, is what Luke writing true? And people were saying, yes, I saw him. So as this is being written, as Luke is talking about the many convincing proofs, he's telling us, you can double check, you can triple check, you can check with 500 other witnesses that what I am saying actually happened. Now, you and I living today didn't see these things ourselves, but others did. And what we have are the eyewitness accounts Things recorded like that in the book of Acts and the Gospels, as well as what 1 John chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 tell us. 1 John 1, 1 and following says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched, touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. These are others that are saying, look, we have seen him. We have touched him. We are telling you these things happened. You know, some people try to paint Christians as people who have checked their brains at the doors. Have you ever been told that? You're a fool for believing. It's a bunch of myths. It's a bunch of stories. Friends, there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Bible, in extra-biblical sources, in all the other places. There is not a single person who denies that the tomb was empty. Not one. What people deny is whether or not he rose from the dead. Some say somebody stole his body. But Luke is saying, listen, there is more than enough ample evidence to prove he rose There are eyewitness accounts. There's archaeological evidence that continues to be uncovered. Many of you probably saw the story again this week of another fortress that was uncovered under a parking lot in Jerusalem that matches the biblical account of the history and things that we see in the Bible. There is proof that what we have in our hands, the word of God, is true. It's not a bunch of made-up stories. It's not myths. You don't have to check your brains at the door to be a believer in Jesus Christ. As we go through this series in the book of Acts, we're going to see that it is not about simple-minded people blindly believing in something, blindly accepting what others are saying. Luke is a doctor, a scientist, a highly educated man. There's Theophilus, this high Roman official who had no reason at all to believe in the things that are in the Bible. It would cost him everything, including his career and life. And yet he is another one. And in the weeks ahead, what we're going to see as we go through this series in the book of Acts is that there are many demonstrable proofs that come through the preaching. In chapter 2, there are the the Palestinian and diaspora Jews who heard the message in their own language. In in chapter 3, the Jerusalem Jews are going to see a miraculous healing to to go with the message they heard. In chapter 14, something similar is going to happen with the Gentiles where there's another miracle to go with the message and many of them will come to faith. In chapter 8, Philip the Ethiopian will have the scriptures explained to him. And in chapter 10, Cornelius will have a vision from God to confirm the things. 
In chapter 13, there's going to be a sermon at the synagogue where the the scriptures are unpacked. And in chapter 17, Paul will speak to the intellectual Jews in Athens. Again, those who have no reason to believe these things, who will be convinced and come to faith. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that there is events and evidence to back up the things that we see. And as, as we look at this, we're going to see the spread of Christianity. Luke's volume one, the gospel, was there. He said to give an account of the things accomplished among us. And that account begins to show us what Jesus Christ began to do and teach while he was physically with us walking the earth before his crucifixion. And what the book of Acts will do, volume two, will tell us the continuing work of Jesus Christ. But in the book of Acts, what we will see is what Jesus continued to do and teach through his spiritual body, not his physical body as he walked among us, but through his spiritual body called the church and how it was empowered by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that will be given to the church. The book of Acts is an account of Jesus continuing ministry from heaven, which takes place on earth through the Holy Spirit as he empowers the people that God has chosen starting with the apostles, as we read here, whom he had chosen. Some refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. But as we read through Acts, what we're going to see is there are only four of the apostles mentioned. There's Peter, James, John, and Paul that are included. Now, when it comes to James, he only gets mentioned in one verse in Acts 12.2. There it says where King Herod had him put to death with a sword. Now, you may be thinking, well, if that's my part in the story, just leave me out right? I'm killed. That's it. Well, what God wants us to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, is this story is one that we all have a part in. And he doesn't want to leave any of us out. He wants us involved in the story of the spread of the gospel and the building of the church, as we're going to see as we go through Acts. As we go through Acts, what we're going to see is this word apostle will show up at various times. And you maybe have heard people in our day. I met somebody just this past week who told me he is the, uh, 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 the apostle of such and such. And, and I just smiled at this gentleman and I said, you know, the word apostle uh, only applies to those who have physically seen the resurrected Lord. Have you had an appearance where Jesus appeared to you? He said, no. And I said, well, then you can't be an apostle. I wasn't trying to be mean. I was just trying to be biblically correct. Because an apostle is one who has physically seen the resurrected Lord. It's why we're going to see later in the book of Acts where Paul will say in 1 Corinthians uh, 15.8 that he was one who was untimely born. You see, Paul was one who had a, uh, a, a, an encounter with the resurrected Christ. We're going to see in the book of Acts where he was on the road going to persecute Christians, trying to wipe out the church, when on the road to Damascus, he had a physical encounter with the resurrected Christ. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And as he came to understand who Jesus Christ was, he became a believer. And it's why Paul says, I was one who was untimely born. I was not in the original group of followers of Jesus. Now, when I tell you that we can't be apostles, we can be disciples. Disciples, the word disciple means a learner, a follower. 
And while you and I have not physically seen the resurrected Christ, we can be a disciple. We can be a follower of Christ. We can be a learner and one who is taking what we know about God and his son, and we can teach others so that they too can become followers of Jesus Christ and other disciples. Now, the title of this book, as I told you, is Acts. And what that shows us is Christianity is not an armchair exercise. This is not about us sitting back in a cozy chair and saying, okay, let's see what the story says. The word acts requires action. And it's action on your part and my part. God wants us to be part of the story, not passive uh, people who are sitting by reading about the early church. What we're going to see as we go through this is that the disciples and the apostles and others were out spreading the good news of the gospel. And some of that is going to come through persecution. Some of it is not what they wanted to do, but God forced them and moved them out through the persecution that was taking place. And as they go, we're going to see that they didn't go alone, but they went through the power of God, through his Holy Spirit. Now, before the Holy Spirit could come, Jesus has to leave the earth. Jesus told them this in the book of, in the gospel of John, while Jesus was still with them before his crucifixion, he said in John sixteen seven, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, this is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In Acts 1, 4 through 5, we see where Jesus gathers his disciples together. And he tells them, it says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John, this is John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this reference is back to something we see in Luke three sixteen. There, Jesus Christ came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he did so, uh, John, remember, said, I'm not even worthy to undo your sandal straps. And Jesus and John were telling people, uh, John's baptizing with water. He says, I'm merely using water. But there is one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit as we go through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit shows up over 50 times in the book of Acts. And he is the empowerment. He is what God has given us. Uh, But here when we read about being baptized, the word baptized has the meaning of being dipped or immersed. It was used of, of putting a piece of fabric in a dye and as it was immersed, it took on the color of, of that item. The word baptism also speaks of uniting with. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Baptizing also means to deluge with, as you picture something that is flowing over. Uh, recent rains that we've had up in the hill country, you've seen rivers moving at a record uh, flow, and, and, and you, you get a picture of being deluged with something as it is just washing over. And this is the picture of the, the Holy Spirit. As I said, all throughout this book, we're going to see uh, God's Spirit at work, empowering and doing things. As we're looking at this passage in Acts, you see all three persons of the Trinity at work. This summer, uh, Michael did a great series on the Trinity. If you missed that or you need a review as to what the Trinity involves, you can go to our website at waystidechapel.org and listen to the series Michael did on the Trinity. The word Trinity is a theological term. It describes the mystery 
of the relationship of, of God as one being equal in nature, but distinct in role and relationship. There are three uh, distinct persons of the Godhead. They are three in one. We have, uh, in, in broad terms, God the Father orchestrates salvation. Jesus Christ is God the Son, and, and he accomplishes salvation while God the Holy Spirit applies salvation. The Holy Spirit is at work in salvation with Jesus Christ's incarnation, his resurrection. It, it's, the Spirit works through the inspiration, the giving of the word of God that was written through human uh, agents, and he illuminates it. He allows us to be able to understand what has been written. And he is the one who provides the power to witness, as well as our daily enablement that we need to live uh, as believers. The Bible tells us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it tells us as Christians not to quench the Holy Spirit. We can block the work of God's Spirit. He is resident within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? We have the Holy Spirit resident within us. When we get to chapter 2, we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost, and we're going to talk about uh, the Spirit falling on the, the first believers in the early church and what that means for us. I know today I keep telling you we're going to look at things, and that's because we're introducing the book of Acts today. And there are so many great things that we're going to see as we go through this series. But something else we'll see in chapter 2 is that there is a tie-in between the Spirit being poured out and what the prophet Joel in the Old Testament said about the day of the Lord coming in the kingdom of God. Again, we'll unpack more of what that means uh, next week when we come back and look at that. But this is why we see the disciples responding as they do in Acts 1-6 where we read, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Remember that as Luke is recording this gospel, Rome is in power. Rome is the foreign occupying power that has, has come in. And the Jews were looking for a military Messiah, one who would come to set them free, one who would come to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. It's why when Jesus made his triumphal entry, as we see in the Gospels, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, as, as Jesus was entering in, remember the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna literally means save us. Save now is what they were saying. They said, this is it. This is the general. This is the guy who's going to gather together the armies and we're going to overthrow Rome. This is the time that we're going to push out this foreign power and the kingdom is going to be reestablished. And it's why the disciples were so devastated when Jesus Christ didn't overthrow Rome, but instead he was nailed to a Roman cross and crucified and died. And they thought, what happened? We missed it. We thought he was the one. But then he rose from the dead. Now he's walking around among them. And the guys are going, man, he is the one. This is it. We didn't see that curve in the road coming. That was a good one, Jesus. Woo, you kind of scared us there. But now you're alive. We know you're the one. And if you can conquer sin and death, well, conquering some human power like Rome is nothing. So they were saying, this is it. The kingdom's coming in. Right, Jesus? And as we read in here, what, what Jesus says to them in verses 7 and 8, it's not for you to know the time 
or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The, the Greek word for time here is chronos. And, and it's, it's a word that speaks of a duration of time. The word for dates is kairos, and it refers to, to two different things, both a length of time as well as the kind of times. You know, when we say, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going through a hard time right now. And what Jesus tells them is they don't, either, they don't need to know either the time or the critical periods. What he wants them to know is daddy, God the father, has the authority And he's in control. You see, God isn't rebuking their curiosity or any of us today who may be curious as to when will it happen? Is this the time? What he's saying is that our focus doesn't need to be so much on the future kingdom. These were guys, you remember, who were all fighting about who was going to have the best places, the highest places of honor, who was going to be near Christ, who was going to rule with him in the kingdom. And what he says is, your focus doesn't need to be on the future kingdom as much as it needs to be on what you need to be doing in the present, about the king's business that you are to be accomplishing right now, the king's business of sharing the gospel You see, as you look at verse 8, he uses the Greek word Allah. And and the Greek word Allah there uh, is a contrastive connective. And what he's telling them here is their primary concern is not to be about the political power that comes with an earthly kingdom or the restoration of that kingdom. Instead, their focus is on the spiritual power that will come through the gift of God's spirit upon them. And that will enable them to be witnesses to the end of the earth. As Jesus calls them witnesses, this is another key term. It shows up 29 times in the, in the book of Acts. And as he talks about them being witnesses, by definition, a witness is someone who tells what he or she has seen or heard. If you go to a court and you're a witness, they don't want to hear your opinion. They want to know the facts. What did you see? What did you hear? Report the facts. And so they were already those who were witnesses. They had seen the resurrected Lord. They had touched him. Jesus says, go and tell people that I'm alive. Go and tell people what I told you when I was with you the first time. Remember, he gives them the commission. He says, go and teach them. Go and baptize them. Go and make disciples, other followers and learners as you share what you know. Now, if, if you read through the Gospels, you'll recall that after the death of Jesus, as I said, they were hiding in fear behind locked doors. When Jesus was on trial, you remember Peter, one of the apostles, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. They're like, you're, you're one of his. Oh, no, I'm not him. And he swears and cusses like a sailor just trying to prove, I'm not a follower of Christ. And when when the resurrection occurred, remember, it was the women who went to the tomb and they ran back and they told the disciples, Jesus isn't there. And, And they ran, Peter and John ran to the tomb to look. They had been hiding. It was women who went to the tomb, not even the guys. They were scared. And Peter was one of them. And what does Peter do? We're going to see in chapters two and four that Peter is now out on the street preaching. The Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, he gets arrested. He gets beaten. He gets thrown in jail. And they say, now listen, guy, 
Don't go out and do that anymore. Don't go talk about the gospel, this message that Jesus is alive. Because if you do, something worse is going to happen to you. This is Peter who at first was willing while Jesus was still alive to deny him. What changed? Everything. Everything changed. Because Peter says, I have seen the resurrected Lord. I know he can conquer death. I'm no longer afraid. If you want to kill me, then kill me. But I cannot not share the good news of the gospel. Peter was one who was out sharing the good news. Throughout this book, we're going to see other believers boldly proclaiming the truth as well. As they go through beatings, imprisonment, and even death for some like Stephen, the first martyr that we'll see in the book of Acts. Now, none of us here have seen the risen Lord ourselves. So you may be saying, well, Roger, how, how can I be a witness today? How can I witness to the fact that I've seen Jesus and I've touched him? Do you remember what 1 John 1 told us? 1 John 1 told us to go and report what we know, to be eyewitnesses of the things that God has done in our lives. An example of this is a, a man who had been a drunk. And he came to Christ, and, and God began to clean his life up and turn him around. And one day he went to one of his friends, and he said, Listen, God is still doing miracles. And his friend said, You're drunk again, aren't you? And he said, No. Listen, God is doing miracles. And his friend laughed at him. He said, Oh, yeah, so you, you believe that Jesus can turn water into wine like it says in the Bible, right? And he said, listen, I don't know about the water to wine thing. I didn't see that. But I've seen where God has turned wine into bread. And his friend said, you really are drunk, aren't you? And he said, no, listen, let me explain. You see, before I became a Christian, I would get my paycheck. And the first thing I would do is I would run to the place and I would cash it. And I would take all the money for my pay. And I would stop at the bar on the way home. And I would spend my entire paycheck at the bar. And when I got home, there was nothing left. He said, but now that I've become a Christian, when I get my paycheck, I take it home and I give it to my wife and we put it in the bank and I'm able to feed my family. God has turned wine into bread. And friends, God has done something like that in some of your lives. He's taken a, a past struggle, a past sin that you've had, and he's changed you. And while you can't report that you physically touched the resurrected Lord, you can say, God has touched my life. And let me tell you about a miracle he's done with me. Let me tell you about how uh, the sin and the guilt and the shame that I used to carry from my past mistakes have been taken away. Let me tell you about how God has brought healing in my life and me giving forgiveness to those that I, I said I would never forgive. And as God calls on us to be witnesses, in 1 John 1, 3, it says, that which we have seen and heard, we report also to you. And that's what God calls on us to do, to go and report what God has changed in our life, what we do know by our own lives that God has done. Start by telling people what God has done in your life. Yes, we're called to memorize God's word and to learn how to answer questions. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But that doesn't mean you have to debate all the issues. Remember to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel message is about how God's son went to the cross and he died to pay the penalty for sins. And he proved that he conquered sin and death by rising again from the dead. 
It's not about going out and debating and splitting hairs over social issues or theological, you know, things on the, on the fringes that sometimes people get in fights about, and they never get around to sharing with somebody what God wants them to, to start with, which is the gospel. As we're going to see in, in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the gospel. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, start there. Go to somebody and ask your friend, if you were to die today and you get to the gate of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? What would you say? And you'll find people who will say, well, I've tried to be good. I've tried to this. I've tried. That's not the gospel. I mean, that is the gospel. They're, they're saying, I'm working my way to heaven. And you go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and you tell them, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And as we are called to be witnesses, to go and share the good, <coughs> excuse me, the good news, that is what God is calling us to do. Not only has God given us the way home, but he's given us the promise of his power to help us as we witness to others. In Acts 1.8 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. As we look at this verse, it's the final marching orders. This is the last orders that our commander-in-chief gave us before he left and ascended into heaven. Not only is it our last orders, which means we're to be about them till we receive new orders, but it also gives us an outline of the book of Acts. Because in the first seven chapters of Acts, we're going to see what was happening in Jerusalem. And then when we get to chapter 8 through uh, 1118, we're going to see what was happening in Judea and Samaria. And then beyond that, we're going to see what was happening in the uttermost parts of the earth as the gospel went from, from Jerusalem throughout the Roman kingdom and beyond. As we began today, I opened my message with the question, how would you have ended it? And I want to close with that same question today. I want to ask you, uh, how will you end the story? You see, you and I have an opportunity today to be a part of the story that is still being written. And the question for us today as we go through Acts is, what part will we have? What will our part of the story of Acts, the spread of Christianity, the sharing of the good news of the gospel be? God has called us to be lights in the darkness, to be those who go into the world. He tells us that he is the one who empowers us that he has given us what we need to share the good news. So as you walk out of here today, where will you take the good news? Where will you shine the light? Will it be with a family member, a friend, a schoolmate, a coworker? Where will you take the gospel? As we're seated here this morning, there are 15 from our church at, uh, of Wayside that are in Guatemala right now at the Potter's House, one of our missionary partnerships. There are parents and children, 15 from Wayside, that have taken the gospel beyond the borders of San Antonio to the uttermost parts of the earth today. And that may be something that God is calling on you to be doing as well. As you look at your life today, how will you end it? I want you to think about that as we close in prayer and ask God to give you the words to speak and the courage you need to be those who will be his witnesses as we walk out of Wayside this morning. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer?
Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, for the the gospel, the good news, the message that while we were lost and far from you, the, the message that while we were sinners without hope, that you sent your son into the world to be our hope, to be our sacrifice, to be the payment for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you willingly went there to pay the penalty of death that was owed. And we thank you, God, for the, the truth of the, that you did not stay dead, but that you rose from the grave, that you showed that you conquered sin and death. And Lord, as we get ready to launch into the, the book of Acts in the weeks and the months ahead, as we look at the story of the spread of Christianity, we, we want to be those who are not just armchair believers who are sitting by and watching the story unfold. We want to be those who are in the story. And so as we leave today, God, we ask that you would give us the courage we need, the words to speak and the opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. As we leave today, Lord, would you empower us? As we know you've already promised, it's up to us just to flip the switch, to plug into the the power that is already there. So we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be your witnesses. Send us out now, Lord, into the dark and dying world that needs to see the light and hear the good news of eternal life that comes through your son. Thank you again, God, for not only saving us, but allowing us to be those who get to share that message. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.